Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Hi, I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering. It is my pleasure to be joined today by Janice. Janice is going to tell us what it's like to come off clonopin after being on it for 35 years. Um, and so Janice, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and talk about this experience. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. So I think, um, I mean, 35 years is a long time to, to take a benzodiazepine uh, medication for. Um, before we go into the difficulties you've had with withdrawal, which we're going to cover, I like to start things off chronologically. What mm -hmm. was happening in your life for you to end up taking benzos in the first place? Well, I never even knew what they were. I was depressed. I had depression. And I'd had that on and off after my first child. But, you know, that was years before. And uh, so it was like 19, uh, it was in the early 80s. And um, I found this psychiatrist. I'd seen other psychologists, you know. So he, um, I went into a hospital. At that time, the hospitals were private uh, exclusive nice places you know where you went for four weeks it was like being in a a motel hotel you know a really nice place so um i went there and that was here in virginia somewhere it's not there anymore and um they after about 11 days in the hospital the doctor they they gave me assigned me a doctor and he put me on uh, a mipramine i think it was nowhere i have to really go back in time uh, and this from somebody that's never taken medication. I mean, my mother was scared of drugs. I was, and never took anything other than baby aspirin. But so I took that and then he put me on Xanax. Xanax was wonderful. So the real reason I was in there, aside from the depression was I had diagnosed GAD. Okay. And mm -hmm. I had had panic attacks in my past. So, okay. So they put me on Xanax and it was wonderful. Everybody loved it. You know, it was yeah. like a high. So um, after a while, the doctor said, well, we can't keep you on this. We need to put you something on that's not as short, you know, I guess a short half-life. So he put me on Clonopin. Sure. Mm -hmm. And after I went on Clonopin, then it was amazing. I could drive. I didn't have any phobias, you know. I just, but the depression continued. Mm -hmm. So I went on a litany of medications, one right after the other. Fortunately, I just never stayed on them. I mean, mm -hmm. I can list all the different drugs. It was horrible. And in fact, now mm -hmm. I'm, I'm still on the lectal. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so uh, when you were started on the, I guess, the Xanax and then eventually the Clonopin, did they tell you how long they thought that you should be on it for? Or My doctor said I needed to stay on it for life. Okay. And what was the, what was the reason for that? Because I had anxiety, and without it, I was going to be anxious. Huh. And uh, do you remember, like, what that felt like hearing that um, way back in the early 80s? Hey, you might need to be on this for the rest of your life because you have anxiety. Well, I felt like, you know, this was, that was my identity, I was now the anxious, depressed person, and I had a like a disorder, you know, a chemical imbalance. That was one of the things, you know, that 
That's what I had. That became my identity. It was the depressed person that was constantly trying to not be depressed. Mm -hmm. So the uh, clown pen was still working. And unlike other people, uh, I never, I may have had some tolerance, but I was still functioning. Uh, But the depression continued. So that's, that's when I started taking all these different antidepressants. Now, do you believe you had a uh, that that was true that you have a chemical imbalance? I thought so, but I don't think that anymore. Because what, as soon as I started, to, well, when I started to taper off the clonopin, the depression went away. I thought oh that God. was kind of interesting. Okay, yeah. Wow. So you think the clonopin was actually making you feel more depressed? It's possible. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's, you know, too much of a coincidence. I mean, sure, I have a day now and then, but, you know, I was told that I had clinical refractory depression. Okay. I don't want to get lost because I'm going to ask us to kind of walk forward. Okay. Um, the, the other thing that I'm always interested in, you know, right at the start when people start taking meds for years to decades is how much of an, I guess, were the professionals that you saw at the time, were they encouraging you to seek non-drug therapies? Were you in seeing counselors? Were they kind of digging at, hey, you know, what could be the non-biological reasons for your depression? Did it, Was any of that going on while they were prescribing? No, the only thing I ever did was when you went into the hospital, they had you see a psychologist that was part of the the flow of that that whole trip. Um, but he, in the beginning, the psychiatry was actual, like, interpersonal uh, therapy. But after a while, it became about medication only, really. Yeah. Did something, what was that, I mean, I know, I mean, a lot of people interact with the mental health field, you know, the first time they're there, and they might be surprised that that is the, you know, that all of a sudden they're just on medications. Did something about that seem off to you or did it just seem really normal because the doctors were so comfortable? Like, do you remember your gut feeling about what was going on back then when all of a sudden you were on, started on these meds long-term? My my gut feeling was that the psychiatrist that I saw for all those years, um, I don't think that the relationship was totally appropriate. Um, I think he became very involved and I was very unhappy in my marriage. And, it, it, you know, I think he sympathized too much, if that makes sense. It almost became like a kind of a strange relationship. And at the time, you know, I actually needed support because my husband was not supportive at all. And here I am trying to raise two young children and I'm depressed all the time. And he kind of fit that bill. And, uh, uh, you know, I mean, just to say how bad the relationship was, he threatened to cancel me one time when I said that I wanted to die. And uh, I sat there and begged. I can still remember sitting on the front porch begging him to not drop me. Begging. That's absolutely crazy. Sounds like when you needed him most, he was saying... I'm going to let you go as a patient. 
Now, I guess he was scared that, you know, he might have to take some responsibility if I killed myself or something rather than deal with that problem. He just, and I, I mean, it's kind of uh, embarrassing to think when I look back at how I just sat on the steps outside my house and just begged, pleading. Imagine doing that with a psychiatrist. I mean, yeah, I mean, it sounds like, sounds embarrassing, you know, that they would put you in that position, you know, because they're in the position of authority where you need their help and that they would kind of make you feel so low like that. Um, I mean, you said inappropriate. What was going on? Um, I was very unhappy in my marriage and I don't think that was helping. And like I said, you know, he just sympathized. I mean, he even began to tell me stuff about his personal life, the loss of his child and all this, you know, and it became kind of a, you know, not a sexual thing, but a strange relationship. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I think he was, I think he was dependent on me for something. I'm not sure what that was. I mean, what you're talking about isn't, um, I mean, it's, 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 it's bad and I've certainly heard about it before, but it sounds like it was leading to a dark, leading to a bad place. So, but I don't want to, I don't want to, I mean, that's a whole nother story and a whole nother interview, but let's stay on the, let's stay on the benzos. So, so you get started on them in the early third, in the, in the eighties. When did they start becoming a problem for you? I didn't have a problem. You know, I hear all these stories from people, you know, I mean, I wasn't, uh, I did start to have a little bit of, uh, of course, I didn't start out on three milligrams a day. I started on a lower dose. And when that didn't seem to do the trick, you know, he would increase it. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the last prescription was written for one in the morning and two to three at night. And I never, thank God, you know, took, usually never took more than just three a day. And, um, yeah, so what was the rest of that question? No, I'm just. That's okay. Let me, let me ask some clarifying questions here. So, so you, you, did you get started on a milligram a day? Was that the initial dose? Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking back to the first, the Xanax, it started at a quarter and then it went to yeah. a half and then, uh, then it went over to Clonopan and I'm, it's so long ago. I can't remember if he started me. I'm assuming maybe at a quarter and a half and then one and then so on and so on, you know. And I don't know if this, <laughs> we're remembering back to the 80s, so I'll keep that in mind. Do you recall roughly like how many years went between dose increases? Like how, how long was a dose okay before you needed to up it because it wasn't doing anything anymore? Not very long, because I think for years and years, many, many years, I was on three milligrams. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't, I think most of that time I was on at least for, I would say, 20 years on clonopin, three milligrams. Okay. And when you're taking clonopin for that long at, you know, what is a moderate to high dose, I'd say, was it? Was it still working for you? You know, um, was it? Did you feel that it was an an effective drug? Yes. Uh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I could travel. I went to Rome, Paris. You know, I could do anything. And now I'm, I'm that. You know. Yeah. 
And so I guess here we are now and, you know, you're going through withdrawal. What, what happened to have, you know, when did it stop working or when did you decide that you wanted to come off? Tell me about that story. Well, over the years, I guess I must have known something about, you know, why would I need to keep taking this? And so over the years, I would casually say to him, you know, like, maybe I should come off of this. Um, what about that? And he would say, well, we can do that. In fact, my husband and I have kind of a joke, an ongoing thing when we say, whenever we say we can do that, because that was the uh, <laughs> the thing that he would always say, we can do that. But mm-hmm. that was up to him. I didn't know anything about that. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So nothing ever happened until he was getting ready to retire. Oh, no. Okay. Carry on. Yeah. (laughs) So so when he was getting ready to retire, what happened? He gave me a list of doctors that I might be able to work with in my area. And um, most of them were with Kaiser, which is – I have Blue Cross, so that's – and – Before he retired, I guess, let's see, I started to taper. He said, well, you could go by half a milligram. So I went down to 2.50. Yeah, 2.50. And um, I I wish, you know, but I had no plan. I didn't belong to any groups. I didn't know anything about tapering. So I did that on my own. And I said, I'm feeling a little tense. And he goes, that's normal. So that's all. I felt until I started to make more cuts and then finally got involved with a Facebook group. I don't know how I did that, but, and then met a woman who we became friends who helped me. So just, just a few details I want to clear up. What year did you start tapering? 2000 and around 2019. And what was it about your doctor retiring that led to, the type of being started? Well, I started to read things about cognitive issues and, you know, being older and not taking stuff like that. And um, also I was a little concerned, I think, about the next doctor, whether, you know, they would keep me on it or not. Mm-hmm. And I'll just say that if, if, I knew, started- <clears throat> if I knew that, you know, I could have a doctor that would continue to prescribe, I probably wouldn't even be doing this. Well, let me ask you this. Before you started tapering, was the drug having any negative impact on your life that that you could observe? No, I just think it was probably making me more depressed. Okay. And... um, how did you think, well, yeah, tell us that story. You know, how did you start to piece together that it might have been contributing to your depression? I don't know. It's just like during the tapering, I, all of a sudden I realized that I wasn't having <clears throat> weeks and weeks of depression at a time. So I just thought, you know, my my thoughts were, that's strange. That's interesting. Of course, I do have a really good therapist, thank God, you know, I started seeing in 2012. So I'm able to discuss all that stuff, you know, with him and get a lot of support there too. So sometimes people mean different things when they say depression. Um, And so 
I was hoping you could just, you know, when you noticed you were feeling different, just maybe just elaborate on that a little bit more, like in what ways, like maybe you were more energetic or more, you know, less anxious or had more motivation. What was the, what was the shift that you were noticing that made you say, huh, maybe I'm less depressed now. Because I didn't have long weeks and months of depression. Okay. And when you say depression, could you describe it with I mean, a different clinical, word? Clinical type depression. Yeah. Now is that like tearfulness or sadness or what is the what's like the flavor of it? I'm just feeling dark all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So walk walk me through your taper. What started to happen um, as you got lower and lower? I just got sicker and sicker. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of digestive stuff, you know, the usual um, tinnitus and um, always the stomach thing going on for the most part. Hardly a week could go by that, you know, I don't have some kind of issue going on there. Um, tinnitus, um, shakiness. Um, I've done the cut and hold pretty much throughout the whole. I did try water taper, and that didn't seem to work for me. So I'd always go back to the cut and hold. So after that initial half milligram cut, I started doing smaller cuts, which in retrospect is, in my opinion, is a mistake. I think that early on, if I had taken larger cuts, I could have done this faster. But that's my feeling, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, how much guidance did you have from your your doctor while you were tapering? None, because by that time he was retired. So I had found another uh, psychiatrist who was also going to retire in two years. That's what he told me, you know. And I even mentioned something to him about, like, I'd like to get off the lamictal. And he goes, well, you're bipolar. You can't do that. <laughs> so I've been through, you know, all kinds of, Doctor, so I worked with him for two years, and I tapered a little bit there. And then I had to find another psychiatrist. I don't know. There doesn't seem to be any psychiatrists anymore. They're all older. So um, he was too young, and he really didn't know anything about tapering. He was telling me, you need to go by a quarter every month. And I said, no, no, that's not right, because by now I'm hooked up with a group, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, you can't do that. That's too fast. And so he was willing to go along with what I said, and but he was just too young. He didn't. I could just tell that was not a good fit. So I found another one, and he's older than I. Am. He's like seventy-five. Oh man! So he's, yeah. he swears he will be able to uh, prescribe even if he retires. He hasn't retired yet. So okay. Um, and this older psychiatrist that you're working with now. Um, how much guidance have you gotten from him in how to safely taper off? Um, well, the first thing he did when I started to see him was he started to push antidepressants. And I have oh. found throughout my experience and gabapentin uh, that it's better to comply. I don't, I don't advocate lying, but I actually took the scripts and actually filled them and even considered taking them because that was going to help my anxiety while I'm tapering off, right? 
Um, but I never did. I just threw him away. And he wanted me to take gabapentin, and he would say, well, why don't you want to take it? Hmm. So he's, he's okay with me tapering slow, but he has said, you know, things to me that I just know are not true, and that is um, we may need to stay on a smidgen. Mm-hmm. How's that going to help? Yeah. What had you experienced in the past that made you feel like you needed to fake um, complying with the recommendations? Well, by the time I got to him, I realized, you know, that, and with my own PCP, because she actually said to me one time when I was at 0.38 on Clonopin, she goes, you're so low, why don't you just jump off? Now, if I hadn't known any better, I probably would have done that. And um, I just, I told her, fortunately, she's pretty low key. So I said, no, that's, that's not going to happen. It's too, too much. It shows that, you know, regular, uh, uh, you know, doctors, your PCP, they just don't know how to de-prescribe. They don't know, they don't understand that, you know, 0.38, for instance, is, is not, is too, too high to jump. So what I do is uh, I just go along. I, I, you know, when I go in to see the psychiatrist, it's just for a half hour. It's just medication management. I need to ask how I, I'm doing, and I'll say, fine. And he tells me, you're amazing. I've never seen anybody like you, your age, and you're, you're able. <laughs> so yeah. I felt like, wow, this is, you know, he, he told me. He said, I've got a couple of really older people in their 80s, and I just can't get them to come off of it, and you just keep going. And I just go along with, I don't ever tell him that I'm suffering because I did that one time and he wanted to push more medicine and to slow down. And I just want to get off of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so, so where are you now with your um, benzo dose? Um, I'm at 4.29 Valium. Okay. What? And tell, talk to us about the transition from clonopin to Valium. How did that happen? What, what was the reason for doing that? Um, because I was beginning to see in the group that a lot of people had done that, and I knew about the Ashton Manual, and I thought, okay, that might be for me. So I started to do that this summer, and um, I didn't think the crossover was difficult at all. In fact, uh-huh. it might have been pretty easy to be on both those drugs at the same time, if that makes sense. Um, And I find Valium to be really more undesirable. And if it makes sense in my head, psychologically, I still think about Clonopin. It almost makes me feel like an addict. It was my friend for all those years. And I find Valium to be heavy, depressive, and... uh, it just doesn't feel like it did the same thing as clonopin. My mind still wants to go back to clonopin. Do you regret transitioning to Valium? Sometimes I do, and sometimes I don't. Um, I'll tell my husband that I wish I was still at clonopin. At least I would understand. He does all the math, thank God, because I, I don't. When I think of what this would be in clonopin, I, I mean, yeah, it would be like 0.19, I think. And that sounds really low to me. When I think of Valium, four milligrams, wow, 
That's actually like going up. It's not, of course, but in milligrams, it sounds like more. And it makes me feel like I've got longer to go. And I think what I've, the conclusion that I've come to is that thinking that crossing order of Valium would be faster and easier, uh, I can see that that's not going to happen. It's not really faster. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think I can go faster. And in fact, what you've described is really common that when, when people swap over to Valium, they start to feel sluggish and depressed. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and, and so it's not, I know a lot of people see it in the Ashton manual and they say it's the way to go, but it just really isn't for, not for everyone. And that's for sure. But I want to ask you this. I want to segue into another part. Talk to me about the impact that tapering has had on your life. Um, it's affected my life in ways that I never, you know, could ever imagine. Not being able to travel, um, starting to have more phobias and you know, agoraphobic behavior. I'm not, I'm not agoraphobic. I can go outside and all that, but it's really hard to get myself to do that because I'm always afraid that if I do, you know, one of these symptoms are going to happen and I'm going to freak out or something. So um, also kind of OCD behavior. Um, not that I was ever that way. It's just behaviors. I wouldn't call it, um, I don't know, just behavioral stuff. So, um, and, and refresh me again, but I, my train of thought is. That's okay. Um, um, yeah, I kind of go through some things that people may struggle with. How is being in this benzodiazepine withdrawal affected your relationships? Um, <clears throat> well, I've, I've told my friends that I, have a medication injury. That's what I've gone to is that's the best thing I think to say that they can understand. I don't expect people to literally understand everything. So most of my friends know about this. I don't think they really understand, but they're tolerant. My husband is very supportive. My psychologist is very supportive. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. It's affected me like spiritually, I don't mean my lack of faith in God, but it's made it so that going to church, at least for now, is really hard. I haven't been to church in a month, so. That's interesting. Could you can you share more why it has affected you spiritually? I don't know. I I, I hate to say it because I don't want to discourage anybody from crossing over, but I think in a way, Valium is kind of taken away my motivation and changed that part of it. That's why I wonder if I should go back to Clonopin, but I'm so scared that I'm going to have some kind of uh, stomach issue or nausea or something like that. And um, I just don't even want to go out. So it's made me feel, you know, as I mentioned one time and I'm Catholic, so Mm -hmm. it's, you know, supposed to go on Sunday, but of course, you know, I have sort of a dispensation because of the anxiety, but it's just really affected. uh, I don't know. It's just, it's done something to me. And 
when I would go, and I mean, mostly I do until during Christmas, I feel like I'm always putting on a show. I push, push, push. And of course, the people in the groups tend to say, don't push yourself. Well, there might be some advantage to that, but I feel like if I don't push, I'll end up doing nothing. And that's and really, Yeah, it's really important for me to feel like I'm have some semblance of a, a normal life, which I did. I hosted Thanksgiving and hosted through Christmas and got through all that. But it does require over time a lot of, I don't mean being fake. I mean, just trying really, really hard to keep a normal life. That must feel exhausting. It is. And it does, that sucks the life out of you. And that's, that's where I start to feel sad is that, that it's yeah. taken away. That. You know, with how you're feeling currently, you know, with the, with the anxiety and, you know, feeling sad. I mean, if you went and spoke to a psychiatrist or a doctor, they might say, well, you know, Janice, obviously this is your underlying condition coming back. That's why you were on these medications in the first place. How do you know that it's not your underlying condition coming back? In fact, the, this new psychiatrist that I've been seeing for two years now, the old one, mm -hmm. um, he said that. He goes, well, you know, when you stop this, you're just going to go right back to the anxiety you had before. And I don't believe that. I mean, I was always, if you want to go back to childhood, I was shy, very shy. And, um, and I think there was a certain amount of anxiety, but I don't think it was anything out of the norm. I think it's something that I really need a needed a therapist for, not medication. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so I've been told all those things. Anything you can imagine, I've been told. You're going to need to stay on some of it. You're, you're going to go back and have the same problems you did that you were put on for it. And <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, let's. I think this is a really interesting place to kind of dig in. Um, and that is that, how do you, like you said before, I needed a therapist, you know, in hindsight, looking back on yourself, you know, shy, anxious. What do you think you needed a therapist to help you with that, that maybe would have pushed you off course from, from this path that you went down? I guess someone that would uh, listen to me and about my marriage and the unhappiness there that, you know, and the trouble with being depressed and trying to raise two children and not have a supportive husband who, you know, more or less told me I needed to pull myself up by the bootstraps. So, um, I think I just needed that kind of uh, general ther therapy, uh, you know, a psychologist, uh, you know, that would help, you know, somebody to discuss that stuff with. And I don't think, because the one I have now, I know he never would have recommended medication. He doesn't really believe in it. But okay. unfortunately, it came later, but, you know, better late than never. So he's also supportive in what I'm doing. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, 
Sure. So looking back on it, it sounds like you just wished someone would have recognized the toll this dysfunctional marriage was taking on you and, um, and how hard that was. Was that really the support that you needed when you were put on Xanax? Probably, but at the same time, I have to admit that, like everybody, I think you want some relief. So when it's offered to you, um, in the terms of medication, I had no idea. So it was it was a relief for the anxiety. Um, but if I could have been guided in another way, you know, I think that, in fact, the therapist I have now, the, he is a psychologist. He's trying to help me with these new uh, emerging agoraphobic and OCD behaviors that I've developed. So that's what we're, we're, we are working on right now. The very thing that the therapist could have done if the psychiatrist, but that's not what they're in it for, I guess. You know, I mean, I think of all the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars. Can you imagine how much mm-hmm. he made over 35 years? Yeah. But anyway. And so were you having agoraphobia back when you were originally put on the Xanax? No. No. So this is all benzo withdrawal um, symptoms now. Yes, and more so with Valium. Valium. Okay. Um, how much longer do you think it's going to take you to finish your taper? Well, I guess I, I thought that maybe six months, but I can now understand that it might be this time next year or less. I wish that weren't true, but I don't, I don't think that this most recent uh, cut of 2% a week is going to work out for me. You know, it's really hard to pick apart what, how much is, uh, are the symptoms from withdrawal and how much is, uh, you know, from physical things or how much is from physical things that are caused by what the, the benzo has done to my body, you know, like I've never thought in terms until the past year about, you know, how I could have a brain injury. Cause I don't like to think of myself as having a brain injury, mm-hmm. but um, I think if I try to go any faster, that it would just be worse. I don't see how I can do it any faster. I mean, you tell me if I, if I go back to 5%, I'm, I did eight now, I've done 8% for two months, tried to do 8% and I can't tell if I'm worse or not. So going back to 5% at that rate, maybe Christmas. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like I've wasted, uh, you know, all these years of my life are wasted and now I'm, you know, 70 and what have I got to face, you know? I don't have a choice. How do you feel about the future? Well, of course, first thing I'd like to do is be off of this and I'd like to be one of those lucky people that don't, that they get better after. Um, I was hoping to be able to travel again. I haven't been on a plane since 2020. I used to fly all the time to California to take care of my elderly aunt. 
So I'd like to be able to travel. I'd like to just not be sick. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my main things is to not be sick mm-hmm. physically. What's that been like? Um, how how has that changed things in your relationship since you've uh, been been sick for so long? In my relationship with your husband? Oh. Well, he's very, very understanding. <laughs> he's, you know, it's, I'm very lucky. So I do have things to be grateful for. And I do, my daughter, who's, um, you know, in her 40s now, she's um, studying to be a therapist herself, but she doesn't really, she's very sympathetic, but I think she doesn't really understand why I can't do this faster. She said, you know, you need to come to Colorado and get into a ketamine clinic or take mushrooms. And, you know, and I said, well, gee, I said, I don't know about the ketamine thing. I certainly can't uh, imagine doing mushrooms, you know, but I don't think I need that. And she goes, no, you just, you'll see everything. It'll be so clear. But, um, yeah, I think she doesn't quite understand why. And, you know, her, she thinks that, you know, being in the group is kind of too dark. So I have learned, I'm, I mean, I love my group. It's Benzo Warrior. But um, I have learned to not read trigger warnings and things like that because, you know, you don't want to be on there all the time looking at this stuff. It's a, it's a very good support system, but you just don't want to rely on it all the time. That's something I've learned too. So, mm-hmm. yeah. What do you think about that gives you hope that things are going to improve in the future? I'm trying to have Mm -hmm. hope. I'm not feeling that way at the moment. Mm -hmm. But I don't, like I said, I don't have a choice. In fact, the thing I've been struggling with recently is um, this whole thing about why did I ever come off of this? Everybody shares me, well, it's the right thing to do. You'll feel better. And I think, you know, but I was feeling fine before. Of course, the problem is you might not be able to find a doctor that's going to prescribe it. And can you imagine ripping somebody off at my age or any age, really? That's crazy. After 35 years of use, you know, just knocking it down by a quarter milligram every couple of weeks. It's just madness. I might want to sue in that case. Yeah. Wow. So I'm trying to have hope, and I do have hope. And I just feel like I was doing better this summer, and I don't know what's happened recently, but I do struggle with should I go back to Clonopin? You know, and I'm having those feelings, and, you know, one minute I'll think, okay, and the next day it's like, no, just stay the course and let's just do this. And, But honestly, when you ask me about hope, um, my faith and all that tells me that I need to have that hope. I should have that hope. I will have that hope, and I do try to have it. But it's also very difficult for me to see the end. Talk a little bit about that. You know, logically, you know, this. I need to be hopeful. I know people get better. I hear that. What makes it really difficult to see the end of this or, or to 
to know that there's, I mean, to know in your heart that there's going to be a good outcome. What's stopping you from that? Because I feel like I'm not, I feel worse in a way, you know, physically. Mm-hmm. And I'm tired. It really wears you down. It's not just, you know, it's not just religion or faith. It's, it's tiring. You know, you don't really get good quality sleep. I can't even remember the last time I dreamed that I'm aware of. Um, so all of those things make it hard to, I feel like I'm trying to beat the clock. Like, am I going to, if I died in a couple of years, um, is this, this is what I have to look forward to is more recovery time. And that's when it's very difficult to think about how's that going to be, you know, it ties into them. Am I going to be one of the lucky ones that can just get off and I'll be better? And, or am I going to have more problems? And you don't want to be thinking about that as a senior, you know? I don't see how that's going to be. I mean, I might live to be 85 or something, but I don't know that. Nobody knows for sure, of course, when they're going to die. You could die at any time, but you just don't want to be thinking about that when you're older. You know, I feel like I'm playing beat the clock all the time. Do you feel like you're, I mean... Do you feel like life wouldn't be worth living if you had to live the rest of your life with the symptoms that you're having currently? No, I think I think it's worth living, but well, I mean, you have to have hope that it will be better. Mm-hmm. You have to do that. Otherwise, you could go into that dark place and think, you know, never. So you absolutely have to keep, uh, you have to latch on to, when everything is is feeling pretty good. And when that happens and when you're feeling really good, you know, you think, wow, I can, I can do this. Everything's great. You know, I'm almost normal. And then of course, you know, things happen and you don't feel that way. So, but you, my biggest uh, thing to tell people is, you know, like even if you're older, you know, you still, you have to have hope. Mm -hmm. Now, would I recommend that somebody come off at this age? I don't know. You can ask me that anytime, but uh, you have to, the biggest thing is, I'm I'm asking you, that's a great question. What what would you say to that? I I would say, you know, how well motivated are you? It would depend on, do you know what you're doing or do you not know anything about it? Do you have a plan? So one of the biggest regrets is that I did not have a plan, you know, in the beginning. So make sure you have a plan. Make sure you have plenty of support. Follow that through, get educated. Um, so as an older person, I'm not sure that I think that it's really uh, good for the body. You know, I mean, I had to drop all exercise except for walking. Um, you know, I used to work out. I was in good shape. And now I just, body, it just feels like it's, I was just telling somebody today, I even tried Botox and filler and to try to make myself feel like I, you know, because I felt really haggard, you know? Yeah. And uh, I, don't th- I definitely think the Botox was not a good idea because that's sort of a neurotoxin right there. But um, I, did, I, have, I really only dabbled in that a tiny bit. But that's how bad I felt looking at myself. So what would I tell other people? You have to be highly motivated to do this. 
Yeah, what's your quality of life? In other words, do you want to have a quality of life? I'm not so sure. That's why I think about would I do this again? Where, where where do you come down on that? You know, when you know when you were, you know, looking back on how difficult this has been. If when your first doctor, when that older doctor was retiring, said, "Oh, you know, I've got another colleague. He's happy to just keep on prescribing this. You know, he he'll be around for a long time." Would you have just? What would you have done? I think I would have stayed on it. <laughs> That's how much it's changed my life. And then it's, I guess it just, you, you stay on, but you're doing well. And I guess it's a ticking time bomb because then there's the, you know, maybe you live the rest of your life with no problems, which I think is very likely for a lot of people or else you start to have, well, I guess maybe there's that depression that's always kind of there, which you learnt about, or you start to have drug side effects later on when they when there's interactions or I guess you worry that if one day you end up in a nursing home and that, you know, the nurses mess up the medications that throw you into withdrawal. I mean, this, I feel like with something like this, as you get older, you really need someone advocating for you. Like, so, so those, those things don't happen later on. I mean, it's just, it's feels like a minefield when I think about it. Well, that's one of the reasons I, I decided to, I'll go ahead and, and taper because I knew about those things. By the time I'd started to taper, I knew that that was a possibility that it could, you know, I could get dementia, which, you know, come to find out, you know, it does affect my thinking cognitively. And then, of course, I also go to that dark place like, wow, am I getting dementia or is this for the medication or, you know, that kind of thing. So... One thing I hear frequently from people who use the benzodiazepines for several years is they say that it impairs their ability to remember things, you know, that, you know, when they're, you know, they look back on their life, you know, maybe they, a spouse will remember something who was unmedicated and they, they really struggle to do it. Do you feel like you had any difficulty consolidating memories um, when you were on the medications? I do now. I wasn't okay, so. aware of it at the time. You know, the time I was on medication, um, I wasn't really aware of anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, there might have been something that, you know. But the reason I think it is medication is because it didn't happen until this. And sometimes it's better than others. You know, we talk about brain fog. You know, I think that part of that brain fog that people have I mean, my feeling after all this time is that if you're all wrapped up in being tired and have anxiety um, and you're constantly ruminating, that that affects the memory. Because I literally sometimes think that I feel like I can't think. And when all of that calms down, I'm not feeling anxious or I take the next dose or whatever, um, then I seem to be okay. But I really think that people don't realize that they're not thinking because they're too nervous or too have too many symptoms. And so that's what's causing their memory to be having memory mm-hmm. problems. And of course I had ECT, but I don't know if that has anything to do with it. I certainly did lose memory after the ECT. 
which I was told, you know, well, you'll get it back in three months. No, not really. Was that your, was that the hospitalization where you ended up on, on Xanax or a subsequent one? No, that was the last, uh, I went to, <clears throat> um, sorry, but I need to chew some gum. Yeah. Go for it. Take, um, a, take a minute. The uh, last hospital that I, I went to was a really nice hospital in DC. And, um, that was the last straw with my husband at that time. He really wanted me to do that because he thought, you know, that'll, that'll fix her. You're going to fix, he was a fixer, you know, going to fix it. So I went and had an interview with the psychiatrist there. And he said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do 12, a series, you know, he showed me a, a video at that time. It was a VH, it was a VHS <laughs> of this <laughs> procedure really didn't want to do it, but uh, I signed on for the 12 treatments. But when I came back and I was in this room with another woman, she was sitting there drooling. And I was just like, okay, can we eat now? Yeah. But by the time I got to the, I think it was the seventh or eighth treatment and the nurse comes around um, to give you a shot to dry up the secretions so that you can have your ECT. Uh, she came to my room and she goes, okay, it's time to take the shot so we can go do this. And I said, nope, I'm done. And she looked at me like I was absolutely crazy. Like, you know, oh my God, I'm going to get in trouble or something. And she goes, what do you mean? And I said, no, I, I don't, not doing this. I want any more treatments. Of course, they can't force you. So that was the end of that. He said, you'll just lose your memory for about three months surrounding the treatment. But I cannot remember lots of stuff about uh, my son, who was my second child. Yeah. Now, that's a very common story that I hear, hear a lot. I mean, ECT, it's, I mean, it's concussive in a way. You know, that, that's, that's part of it is um, there's, something, there's something about it that, that really has a large impact on memory for some people. And so that's, that's just awful. Um, I mean, I wouldn't recommend it myself. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I mean, when you were having ECT, do you feel like a lot of the depression was still coming from, you know, difficulties in your marriage um, and all of that? Was it was or was the depression coming from something else when that was going on? No, it didn't help at all. Yeah. And in fact, my, my psychiatrist, he sent me on to NIH to do trials. Yeah. So that's when I went through the heavy-duty uh, Tegretol, Depakote. I did all those studies with NIH. And part of that was, you know, your medication was free. Of course, nothing is really free, right? Somebody pays yeah. for that. But uh, Depakote, um, Tegretol, what's the other one? Something else? Um, lithium, maybe? I think yeah. I was on lithium for about a month. I've done it all. Uh -huh. MAO, lithium, yeah. um, still on Lamictal. In fact, I wonder if that's, you know, I shouldn't be getting off that, but I was told, no, you cannot get off that either. Um, I've done it all. Let me, well, let me ask you this, looking back on your life, kind of having, I mean, you've gone through the system. I mean, all the way up to ECT, you've been in hospitals, you've been on multiple medications. Do you feel like 
do you feel like any of that was really beneficial for you in the long run? No. The most beneficial thing I've done is to be remarried 20 years later and to have a therapist and to be, I'm, I'm lucky to have a roof over my house and supportive people. And, you know, I can tell by looking at you that you just can't believe this is like, yeah. you, you know, you look like, wow. <laughs> well, it's, Oh, well, I definitely do believe it. Um, I mean, I'm more just like, it's, I mean, it's, it's crazy. I think about how much, how much time you've spent, how much financial resources you've spent, um, on treatments that it sounds like you regret ever having. I regret, uh, the only thing I don't regret is in the beginning, how, Xenix helped me be able to drive on interstates and the beltway and all that, you know, in the beginning, but that began to, you know, go away after a while. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. but I didn't understand that, you know, I mean, I was just told, well, you need to increase the dose, yeah. but that's the only part I regret. I, I, I regret now that there's absolutely nothing that I can take that will help relieve symptoms there is mm -hmm. nothing yeah yeah um but you know the xanax i mean that's really i mean if we were thinking about a use case scenario for those it's you know one-off use when you have to drive somewhere maybe or when you have to get on an airplane and you don't take it long term i mean that's really when you would use that medication and yeah. so i mean it makes sense that that was the one place where you were like, actually, I worked there for a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely think it's okay. I'm, I'm not, I know a lot of yeah. people in the group, oh my God, don't ever, I'll never take another pill. I don't feel that way. Even if I were yeah. off of this, if I needed to travel, I would take some Clonopin with me or Xanax. Yeah. So, um, we've, we've covered a lot now, and I think it's a good time to, to bring it to a close. So I want to ask, is there anything that we haven't covered um, that you would like to share with my audience before we wrapped up? Um, I guess I just want people to never go down this road that it isn't necessary. I mean, maybe for a couple of weeks, even a month, you know, I know they say just a couple of weeks, but you know, I, I certainly don't think you need it for PMS or childbirth or, you know, I mean, postpartum depression or, you know, I think there are certain situations, but, you know, to just please be educated. And if you are already on it, have a plan, definitely have a plan and understand, you know, what you think your body can take and take into consideration whether you would be, if you just decided to stay on it, um, are you going to be able to find somebody that's going to keep prescribing and weigh all the things like that? And whether you think it's going to hurt you cognitively or just know exactly what you're going to do. Don't just go diving into it. Uh, you know? Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that is really great advice and um, I'm going to say thank you. Thank you mm -hmm. so much for agreeing to come on and, and share your story and, I think this is going to have a big impact. Um, 
for anyone kind of thinking about taking this medication. So your story is really helpful. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you want to work with us, go to taperclinic.com where you can discover our pressure-tested strategic taper protocol that has helped hundreds safely discontinue their psychiatric medications. And if you want to see the full video interview or more exclusive videos about tapering tips, medication management, and adverse drug reactions, go follow Dr. Yosef on YouTube.